welcome to the Macabre Emporium. Welcome back to Macabre Emporium. We are on episode 11. Episode 11 and the first episode of 2023. Yay, 2023. Hopefully everybody had a good Christmas and New Year's. Yeah. Yeah, well. Ours was good, our Christmas. Yeah, I mean, other than the frigid cold that we had come through for, what, three fucking straight days? No, it was longer than that. True. Yeah, because it came in, what was it, Thursday evening, and it was there until... I mean, Saturday, no, Sunday night. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cold as fuck. Yeah. Unfortunately, we had a New Year's Eve episode planned, but because of the said blizzard we just talked about, we had to postpone it, and we were going to do a give you some idea of, you know, how things went for our first year. And we were also... What I have been collecting is somewhat amusing audio clips from all of our previous episodes, but it came out to be three minutes long, and I was going to add that in, but we're going to add those in at the end of the 2023 episode now. This episode. Not this episode. Well, yeah, we can't do that. And we still want to get our thank yous and shit out, so. So just to give you guys an idea how well we did in our first year, I don't think Sarah's really totaled up these numbers, plus she doesn't... No. Really look into all the other stuff like I, don't, I do. I don't even know everything that we're on right. to look up. So so we have reached three continents, Ooh. eight countries, yeah, 26 states. That's a lot. And we have approximately 40-ish followers which in our first three months, which is a lot more than I thought we would do. Same. Yeah. So. So hopefully by the end of this year... I would like to see, hopefully we can double it with your guys' help with the recommendations and whatnot. And, yes. And for those on my personal Facebook page. All the Dans. Hello, all the Dans. Hello, all the Dans. She doesn't really hate Dance Ember if it seems that way. She's been commenting on things. <laughs> no. She just does it to get under my skin. It's. It, I just think it's goofy. Yeah. But to but, each their own. But with everybody's help, thank you, that has helped plug their show or, you know other podcast hosts like justin rimmel that from mysterious circumstances kevin carlton yes absolutely you know can't forget him you know plugging our show more than once the kevin's yes um so yeah all of our usa listeners thank you yep all of our uh we have listeners in australia sweden yep australia singapore Mm mm-hmm uh, and South Africa well, as, as of a couple nights ago. Yep. And multiple UK. ones through the United Kingdom. Yes. So thank you to every single one of you that have listened to us. It means a lot. It really does. And if anybody might be curious on what our top five episodes were for our first, you know, go around at this. I'm interested in this. <laughs> so our very first episode was our highest downloaded episode was obviously episode one okay will you will you read the titles out because i'll remember what they were episode one was what will it do to your soft tissues which was pizza funeral yeah yep yep and leslie ellen williams correct yes 
and episode three, which kind of surprising to me was had such gained a huge popularity, probably because of your true crime case involved with it, was uh, she is just as ugly on the inside as she is on the outside. Sylvia Likens. Mm-hmm. Uh, followed by Ronald and the Colonel aren't loving it. My first true crime <laughs> case where I went a thousand miles an hour straight head on in true crime. <laughs> yeah, you did. <laughs> And the next one would be our bonus episode for Halloween. Hell yeah. Um, if you're curious to why we didn't do the double episodes like we did with the Halloween one, is it's just because we have Thanksgiving, Christmas, and New Year's in such a short span of time. That would have been way too much work for us. So that's why yeah. we rolled those back into a regular weekly episode minus the New Year's one because that never ha- actually happened because of correct the weather getting holiday plans shifted around and it, yes. we weren't able to really fit in plus you having covid and your oh, yeah. brain fog was still pretty yeah, pretty which, strong with the, typing out this episode and the new year's one and all that i'm pretty sure it's gone thankfully yeah it seems to be and for our fifth episode most downloaded episode was the over the hill episode with the birthday origins because <laughs> everybody wanted to hear me bust your balls Oh, I'm sure that's probably what it was. What is it that you have today for us, Sarah? I have... Let me guess. True crime. True crime! It is true crime. Yay. Back to my roots. It's. I feel like it's been a little bit since I've done a true crime. Mm, like since Sylvia might, Likens. It might feel that way because of the holiday episode we decided not to do anything. Uh, and Well, more or less, you didn't want to have did true crime within a holiday yeah, well, yeah. I mean, Christmas is a big downer for the both of us, so right. let, let, we'll just know. do something a little more I don't more know. So the Christmas episode for 2023 might be a little bit different. We might, you know, pull off something doing true crime this year. Oh, maybe. Depends on if we commit a crime or not. <laughs> I don't plan on committing one. Well, I don't plan on forcing you to commit one either. <laughs> Other than killing the podcast game, maybe. <laughs> Not really. I'm gonna, I'm gonna kill the game. <laughs> Anyways, yes, true crime for me. What are you doing? I'm going to be doing. I guess you could say that it fits into the poll that I put into our group. If you haven't joined yet, is McCabe Emporium Podcast on Facebook. Um, come join us. We'd love to hear from you guys in there. If you haven't joined already, feel free to share any stupid, you know memes or topic related articles like i did find a three minute news clip from dick hall from the tony curtis episodes yes how he the neat not the new york indianapolis police department actually stayed with his family for four days after the fact to help give him protection you know shield him from the news media and Mm -hmm. as a thank you he actually did speak up for a fourth time publicly after I found that, you know, you know, after I found this is that he actually would help with hostage negotiations training with the Indianapolis Police Department as a oh, as a thank you gift, for, you know, for all the hard work that his their officers put in for them during his yeah. family's time after all that. Definitely paying that forward. Yeah, that's like huge pay it forward that, you know, can't really be repaid. Yeah. Uh, but like I said, with where I was going before I went off track. Ha ha! <laughs> yeah. Um, my story is literally going off the rails. 
Mine kind of goes on the rails. Oh, no, mine totally <laughs> does go off the rails. But as I was saying with a poll that I put in our Facebook group about me giving me a challenge of trying to fit some weird batshit crazy Victorian period thing in there, yeah. this actually fits on top of that. So this is a, you know. Win-win. Win-win, basically. Sweet. I will be covering the during its time period when in the United States they actually crashed trains for entertainment. Oh, that was this one. Okay, 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 okay. That explains what you were watching the other day. Yeah. Okay. Let me preface this by saying this is going to be long and repetitive and absolutely insane and infuriating. From cover-ups to conspiracy theories to some real shitbag humans, buckle up for this one. I will ease you in slowly and then go full ham on the information. It's a lot. So, you ready? No. Okay. So, you're saying it's going to go up to full throttle on this? Full. You are so punny. Yeah. Come on. It's a, a train-related episode, so I'm going to, you know. It is. Nobody knew that it was train-related. It is. No. <laughs> <laughs> Anyhow. And this is why Noodle says I'm the best host. <laughs> Even though we both know she's fucking lying. It's cute. Whatever. What's up, Noodle? Anyways. Two boys had supposedly left home around midnight to head out hunting. Because what else do you do in Arkansas at midnight, really? Go to Walmart because Walmart was founded in Arkansas. Seriously? Yep. Why do you know that? We're just okay. Moving on. <laughs> You're still questioning that after all this time. <laughs> I shouldn't be. The flashlight and the gun near both bodies, and I'll come full circle with that. Okay. The flashlight and the gun near both bodies suggest that they were using a hunting technique called spotlighting. Do you know what that is? Um, probably what if they were hunting deer, probably deer in a headlight look caused them to freeze or animals to freeze for the most part. Yeah. Uh, so back where I came from, um, we call it shining up there. Yeah. It's basically you take out just a real super, super bright flashlight mm -hmm. and you don't even have to be hunting. You can just be driving through the woods and you just shine it. You know, you shine and you look for the eyeballs and you just watch them. Right. Because we, we never went hunting. But that's what, <clears throat> that's what it is. Um, you just look for eyeballs reflecting back at you. And I also can't remember how it sounds like it'd be illegal in some states, but... It is super illegal. At least it is up there. Probably most states where hunting is a huge illegal. popularity. Yeah. Around 4 a.m. on August 23rd, 1987, a Union Pacific locomotive was traveling, was traveling near Crooked Creek Trestle in Alexander, Arkansas. It was 75 train cars in length, 6,000 tons in weight, and moving at roughly 50 miles an hour. They were heading toward Little Rock, Arkansas. One of the crew members on board happened to look out the like little window um, and saw bodies of two teenage boys laying on the tracks. And this, they said, in estimation, was about, they saw the bodies about 300 yards in front of the train. Mm-hmm. You think they could stop in time? Absolutely fucking not. Unfortunately for this crew member, even though he did everything he could by engaging the emergency brake and blowing the horn, he was unable to stop in time. Yeah, because actually one of the people I volunteered with had just recently passed away. He retired from the Northwalk Southern. He had told us about oh. when 
do you get involved with an accident you know being car or squishy materials or soft targets yeah. whatever you want to call it soft targets oh god he said the okay. best thing you could all we could really do is throw the emergency brake on and throw a chair around backwards and hope for the best so we didn't have to watch it oh is the what how he put it that's rough you'd have to imagine it's not easy to stop something that big and that heavy traveling at that speed Therefore, they were unable to avoid running over the right. bodies that were laying there. The train would end up being more than a thousand feet beyond the point of where they saw the bodies yeah. on the track before it actually came to a stop. No, oh, yeah, I am. And that's with like him doing everything he could do. Emergency brakes, everything. The crew reported what happened to the railroad and law enforcement. And by 440 a.m., the police had arrived on the scene. The crew members of the Union Pacific train said that both boys were partially covered by a pale green tarp. Yet the police disputed that the tarp existed at all and that none was recovered from the scene. If it actually did exist, it more likely was blown up out of the way at some point. There was a gun found, which wound up being classified as a twenty-two caliber rifle as well as a flashlight. And as I stated mm -hmm. before, they were both near the body. Bodies. These would be the bodies of two best friends, 16-year-old Donald George Henry, who went by Don, and 17-year-old Larry Kevin Ives, who went just by Kevin. Um, both boys from Bryant in Saline County. Unfortunately, this is probably the most straightforward information that will be given. This is a case full of cover-ups from state, federal, and local governments who would all be playing a a part in this case and it started already with the police officer officers stating that there was no tarp and ordering the scene to be examined as an accident rather than a murder the collection of evidence was downright stupid there were pieces that weren't even collected which included one of kevin ives's feet they didn't collect an actual physical body part correct his foot sat there on the tracks for a few days before it was found by one of the victim's family members. I'm surprised it stayed that long and something didn't carry it off. Yeah, especially being Arkansas. <laughs> um, that's that's awful. Yeah. Can you imagine having found your dead relative's foot, foot? <laughs> days later and it's already bloated and everything? Yes. Uh, the EMTs that were there claimed that the body and condition of the bodies would suggest that both victims were dead before the train hit them, but those statements were omitted from the report. Kevin and Don's deaths were initially ruled accidental as the result of both boys being sleepy on the tracks due to smoking 20 marijuana cigarettes. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and basically putting themselves into a weed coma. What did they do? Reference the, the 1920s film Reefer Madness as a fucking medical <laughs> guide here, basically? The, you ever watch that? No. Oh, you should. It's I have not. fucking hilarious. I bet. Yeah, I guess like it basically ends up with the, like their main character committing murder because he smoked weed. The medical examiner, Dr. Femi Malik, said that they had marijuana intoxication. Yeah, okay. And you already know I've never smoked weed a day in my life before, and I even know that's fucking bullshit. <laughs> yes. I mean, um, you can be high as fuck, but unless that's like the medical term for high as fuck is marijuana intoxication. I don't know. Either way, Maybe. like, give me a fucking break. You're not, first of all, unless you're Snoop Dogg, you're probably not going to be able to smoke. 
20 fucking joints. Or Willie Nelson. <laughs> or, yeah. But not a 16 and 17 year old boy. No. They'd be gone off of a half of a joint. And they probably don't have enough money to have that much weed. Correct. Even at this time. But <clears throat> a dime bag was still a dime. <laughs> right. Uh, those were pretty much the same sentiments of the boys' parents. They're right. like, there's no fucking way. Five months after the boys were both killed, their parents held a press conference in hopes that it would force authorities to reopen the investigation. The very next day, they did just that, and it was officially reopened. The presiding judge, John Cole, would assign attorney Dan Harmon a special prosecutor of the case, and he would be assisted by attorney Richard Garrett. Harmon and Garrett would go on to Kevin's mother and promised her that they would do everything in their power to bring her son's killer or killers to justice. To justice. Though, as weeks and months went by, the investigation didn't get very far. Go figure. The bodies were exhumed for a second autopsy, as he was also skeptical of the marijuana findings that Malik, the autopsy guy, um, had originally concluded with. Garrett said that he had found... What he would equate to, like, one to possibly two joints worth of weed. That was it. Right. So how the medical examiner got 20, who knows? Maybe you forget the rest of zero? I don't know. I doubt that. Yeah. He also found concrete evidence that one of the boys was dead before being placed on the tracks, and the other one was unconscious prior to the train rolling over them. Garrett would then focus on the pale green tarp that was reported by the crew on the train. The parents were avid that neither boy owned one, so Garrett wanted to know where it came from, who covered them with it, and why they did it. Right. The jury had ruled Kevin and Don's death as probable homicide. After finding out that Don's shirt had had evidence of a stab wound on the back of it, Kevin's skull had also been crushed by his own weapon, which was the twenty-two caliber caliber rifle. Right. He didn't do that shit himself. Right. After this, the jury changed their ruling to definite homicide. The father of Don made a statement saying that he did not believe his son would have risked scratching up his rifle by laying it on the ground, especially on gravel. Right. So, like, he wouldn't have gotten on... If they were, if they had willingly like walked themselves and sat down on the tracks, like he wouldn't have just laid his his weapon down. Right. He took a lot more pride in it than that. Yeah, because it was probably if he had that much pride in it, it was probably a gift to him from probably his father or a relative or probably. He, you know, or he had to you know mow lawns to get it. Lack of a better kid job, I guess you could say. You know. Yeah. It was probably like I guess you could say probably his like first real adult purchase when at this. Time, what year did you say this was? Um, 87, I believe Yeah, it was. you probably still yeah, could just buy, you know, you know, firearm, specific firearms at a certain age at, at this time, but I'm not sure. I'm not a right. firearms expert, but anyhow. His, his dad did also say that there's no way that he would let somebody ruin his weapon, mm-hmm. and he damn sure wouldn't be the one to ruin, like, to scuff up his, his own weapon. Right. Prosecutor Garrett is quoted saying all four of the people on the train who were able to observe the scene prior to the accident stated that the boys were partially covered by a green tarp. Which it's interesting that this green tarp keeps coming up for the thinking about with my knowledge of railroad 
uh, being in 87, mm -hmm. you're probably only looking at an engineer and a conductor at this time because cabooses were actually being phased out and it was by 1987 is when they stopped using those before the flagman was moved up into the cab. So there's at least two eyewitnesses for in the cab itself. Oh, okay. That's what I'm saying. Okay, I got it. As ya. seeing this tarp. Yeah. And there's also, well, depending on how late in the 87 this was, it could still be the flagman was still in the cab as well, too. And right. So now you'd have a possible two to three seeing this tarp <clears throat> immediately. Yeah. But as I stated earlier, the police that searched the scene later denied the tarp ever existed. And also that the engineer aboard the train never mm -hmm. mentioned a tarp. The engineer came out saying that the police even questioned him about the tarp's existence. The engineer <clears throat> said that, to me, would be like questioning the existence of the boys on the track in general. Right. Because what's real is real and what's not is not. And it was there as well as the boys. Right. So, yeah. Then they got a lead. A traveling tarp salesman. <laughs> yeah. Yup. No. About a week before the boys died, a man wearing military fatigues was spotted near the tracks. The way he was acting made police officer Danny Allen's suspicions grow. So he went to question him until the man opened fire on him. Danny Allen said, I got up from my seat. The subject was gone. We searched the area and never found the subject. Yeah, let's not try to make ourselves look too fucking guilty here. Right. On the night of Kevin and Don's death, witnesses again reported seeing a man in military fatigues. They said he was heading down a road less than 600 feet from the exact spot where the boys' bodies would be found. Police, of course, were never able to find him. Yeah. You know, because that's just how they work. This drug sale was a bit different, though, as it was a police-protected drug deal. The deal was part of a drug smuggling ring based in a small airport in Mena, Arkansas. The Mena ring was set up in the early 1980s by a notorious drug dealer smuggler named Barry Seal. While facing prison after a drug conviction in Florida, Barry flew to Washington, D.C. and put together a deal that allowed him to avoid any prison time. How? By selling tarps as his traveling salesman. <laughs> No, by becoming an informant for the U.S. government, of course. That would have been my second guess. Yeah, although the traveling tarp salesman's pretty great. Uh, yeah. While being an informant against other drug smugglers, Barry testified that he worked for both the DEA and the CIA. In a federal court case, Barry stated that his income from March 1984 to August 1985 was between seven hundred and eight hundred thousand dollars by being an informant. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, this was what he was making after his deal with the government was made. He also testified that almost sixty-six thousand of that came from smuggling drugs while working for and with permission of the DEA. Aside from his informant duty, Barry was used to help finance Nicaraguan Contras. By the CIA. I had to look that up. Um, and according to Google. Oh, um, I know about Contras is up, down, up, down, left, right, left, right, BA start or something like that. Was that a game? It's the Konami code for Contra. They give you 99 lives. Oh, I don't know There's that. something similar to that. Okay, so according to Google, their 
default explanation is, and this is quoted right off of Google, yeah. The Contras were various U.S.-backed and funded right-wing rebel groups that were active from 1979 to 1990 in opposition to the Marxist Sandinista Junta of National Reconstruction Government in Nicaragua, which came to power in 1979 following the Nicaraguan Revolution. And even reading that, I don't fucking know what it is. They sound like militia groups. It's that's what it, yeah, I mean other than that, it to me it just wasn't a very good description. Anyways, the Mina Ring and CIA connection was cro- was concretely undeniable when a cargo plane that was given to Barry by the CIA was shot down over Nicaragua. Even with all that evidence, each investigator who tried to expose the crimes of Mina had been destroyed professionally. Those involved in drug smuggling rings continued to receive protection from state and federal authorities. Theorists state that their death came to them because they witnessed that drug deal, which was very, very similar to Barry Seal's operation near Mena. Mena? Mm -hmm. That place. They claimed it was murder, but this would not be the only theory that came out. There were many. Kevin's father, Larry had hired a private detective to see if they could find out what had truly happened. Larry was quoted as saying every time he would try to find something out, it seemed like he would meet resistance from different authorities and we weren't getting anywhere. Unsolved Mysteries would air an episode about this case and would leave a number to call with tips. When the show was broadcast, a witness, Keith Coney, had already been murdered and within a six-month span, five more were killed. <gasps> Because this isn't, doesn't smell like a government cover-up Hell at no. all. I can already feel my tinfoil hat tightening up here in this. <laughs> yeah. They were all linked by having been interviewed by either Harmon or Garrett, the two prosecutors. Okay. Don, sorry, Dan Harmon and Richard Garrett would get numerous phone calls with tips. However, in an extremely redacted, extremely redacted, FBI file from 93. Mm-hmm. Witnesses that called into Garrett's tip line were apparently threatened and told not to call again and to not talk about the murders. First off. Again, this doesn't smell like a government cover up at all. Right. Do you know what redacted is? Yes. It's when they basically blank out a line because I've kind of. Okay. I read, <clears throat> looked at some stuff like out of curiosity. And it's just a thick black line so you can't read it. Yep. Pretty much. Yes. Okay. So bits and pieces have come out over time and it's helped piece together the story of what happened. And now we're going to really like dig into this. Okay. That was all just like prep. Uh, Keep in mind everything that I've said up to this point. Okay. Okay. Around 2 a.m. heading home from hunting, Kevin and Don walked the tracks and happened to come across a group of five people. This would be Dan Harmon, Keith McCastle, Charlene Wilson, and two other people that I could not get the names for. There was a very brief confrontation and at least one fired shot. The boys took off running and ran straight into Keith Coney. So Keith Coney was the one that I had just talked about that Mm -hmm. was murdered before the Unsolved Mysteries episode actually aired. He was riding his motorcycle at the time. They walked with Keith and wound up talking about what had just happened. Then... Two off-duty cops, Kirk Lane and Jay Campbell, showed up in an unmarked car and arrested both Kevin and Don. But why? Right. And Keith fled on his bike. One of the officers would hit Kevin in the back of the head, 
with the butt of his rifle, his own rifle, not right. Kevin's rifle. Um, and it wound up knocking Kevin out cold. With the boys in the back of the car, Lane and Campbell headed east back towards the train tracks where they met up with Harmon and the rest of the group that they had run into earlier. Reports aren't clear, but it is believed that Kevin died en route um, due to the injuries sustained mm. being... Blood force trauma. Yeah. Yep. With that happening in the car. And that this would be the, the best time to go ahead and kill Don by stabbing him in the back. This is when their bodies would be laid out on the tracks and covered with a tarp. As they hoped a train would come by, the crew might see the tarp and think nothing of it and just roll by. Yeah, okay. When they're trained to stop for any obstruction on railroad tracks, but... Right. Unfortunately for this group of idiots, the wind is a thing. Yeah. And the tarp had blown a bit, partially uncovering one of the boys. So this tarp actually does exist. Or existed. It does not exist. Okay. Yes, it fucking existed. The reason for the murders is what was seen when they encountered the group. The boys had been witness to a drug sale and had multiple witnesses' testimony to that, as well as past polygraphs. Mm -hmm. So, you know, they can't really hide that. (laughs) Right. They saw Dan Harmon being protected by local officials and law enforcement collecting a huge shipment of cocaine that was dropped off by a low-flying airplane. Enter the Barry Seal and Mina shit from earlier. Mm-hmm. Okay. So, we're going to dig in a little bit to these autopsies. Okay. Okay? The first autopsy was done by, I had already said, uh, Femi Malik. He had seemingly mutilated the boys' bodies during the their autopsy and told his assistant to... Never mind the stab wound. Yeah. So, you can't doctor, a giant stab wound was back. Yeah, that's nothing. Don't pay attention to that. Right. An independent, yeah, an independent medical examiner said it was the most bizarre autopsy he had ever seen. What would make Malik butcher the bodies the way he did? Was there something in it for him? It just so happens that the person that appointed him as medical examiner for this case would allow him to continue working after fucking up as badly as he did. As well as praising him and giving him a 40% pay raise. Yeah. The one that did all of this was none other than the governor of Arkansas at the time, Bill fucking Clinton. Great. Now we're going to have the Clinton death squad after us. Thanks a lot. (laughs) This may be our last episode, everybody. Yeah. But this seemingly is kind of like how Malik operated. He would fuck up and basically listen to what the police would say and what their thoughts on Mm -hmm. whatever it was that happened to this person. And that's kind of what he would just put on the the report. Yeah. Yeah. So now that we're probably going to have two downloads near the fucking white house and just for the record we do not have any information on hillary clinton so please let us be (laughs) yeah uh so yeah he'd botch the written report and make the death different than what it actually was for instance there was an autopsy he did of a man that was decapitated okay Mm -hmm. decapitated but he put stomach ulcer as the cause of death what the fuck it reminds me of, like, I think it's the first episode of Better Call Saul when he's trying to defend the fucking teenagers. And the defense just silently gets up and turns on the fucking video of them pulling the head off of a fucking body. Yep. Yep. Um, he... 
Yeah. So the cause of death for that guy was a stomach ulcer. And the reason his head was missing was because the family dog ate it. God, I hope this guy is like got his license fucking pulled at this point. Even going so far as to say he found brain tissue in the stomachs or in the dog's stomach. Is this like fucking Dr. Nick from The Simpsons? Really? In like a new name? (laughs) I don't know. But yeah, so supposedly found brain tissue in the dog's stomach, even though the head would later turn up in a garbage can. Fully intact. Fully intact. Shocker. Yeah, well, I mean, sans body, but yes, fully intact head. What did what did Malik say about this? Well, the dog must have thrown it up, of course. The it, whole fucking head. <laughs> yeah. What well, was this dog like? A Tibetan Mastiff? Like, or, or is it no <laughs> Tibetan Mastiff or fucking Clifford? To throw oh up a God. whole fucking yeah. human head? Yeah. Jesus fucking Christ! Fully fuck? intact head, no bite marks whatsoever. Another one was he ruled a suicide for a man that was shot in the chest five times. No, let me guess. Fucking stomach ulcer again, too. Like, how we talked about before in previous episodes, how we look up people to see what they look like. I want to see the fucking you, face of stupid. You will. Um, yeah. Shot in the chest five times. There was no gun left at the scene or residue on him, so mm. obviously not suicide. Right. However, the most damning one, in my opinion, is that of 17-year-old Susan Deere. June 1981, she was drinking and riding in cars with boys, and they drove past Billy Ray Washington. The fellows in the car threw a beer can and yelled racial obscenities at Washington, and in retaliation, she picked up a chunk of concrete and threw it at the car. The chunk hit deer instead of the car and caused damage to her nose and her teeth. She went to the hospital, and thankfully, her facial injuries were not life-threatening. However, they would require reconstructive surgery. The next day, she had surgery and everything was going well until complications arose and she died in surgery. I mean, stupid game, stupid prizes. Yep. The well-documented complications happened when nurse anesthetist Virginia Dwyer Kelly had a hard time transferring the breathing tube from her throat to her nose. Susan Deere was left without oxygen for a good chunk of time. We all know what happens when you're without oxygen for a decent amount of time. It causes the dead. Brain death. Yeah. So anyways, Malik signed off on the death report as it being homicide. Death by blunt force trauma. This led to Billy Ray Washington being tried for murder and letting Virginia Dwyer Kelly off for malpractice. Oh yeah, Uh, Virginia Dwyer Kelly... Is also Bill Clinton's mom. Oh, like I said. <laughs> what a yeah. surprise. This is no government cover government cover ups whatsoever. Yes. At the beginning of nineteen eighty nine, the public raised such a stink about the drug epidemic and kept talking about how crooked the official the local officials were that it inspired a federal probing into corruption in Saline County. This would be overseen by U.S. Attorney Chuck Banks and ran by Robert Govar. Coincidentally, in the same time frame, the budget would clear for a new drug task force to be uh, led by Prosecutor Jean Duffy. Jean was told from the start that she was not allowed to use her task force to investigate any public officials. Of course not. Yeah. 
She would only be on this investigation for nine months and have her reputation marred by her boss, Gary Arnold, due to several shutdowns. Even though it didn't take her long, she had her undercover agents on the prowl. They discovered the entire drug ring shenanigans was run by faces and names that we already know. Dan Harmon, Kirk Lane, and Jay Campbell. Jean Duffy utilized the fact that she was running a parallel investigation to Govar's that she went to him and handed everything over that she had found out. But that would prove to be a fuck up. Robert Govar had two best friends that just happened to be Kirk Lane and Jay Campbell. The two cops that are believed to be the murderers of these boys. Yeah. Not shockingly, that connection would never see the light of day. Even though the grand jury told Chuck Banks to indict Harmon, Lane, and Campbell, and all of the others involved in the ring in Saline County, Banks declined, saying that the investigation had found zero evidence of corruption. I don't know about you, but that sounds pretty fucking corrupt to me. <laughs> no, not so lot whatsoever. <laughs> not the slightest fucking bit. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Gene Duffy wound up being practically the only person to actually do their job correctly. And that also means that she didn't make any any friends. Not that she was trying to, but right. yeah. She was now the target. Yeah. By late 1990, Don Harmon was elected district prosecutor and used all of his newfound power against Jean and her task force. Within a few weeks, Jean Duffy was fired and then subpoenaed for court to hand over all of her records and file she refused and had a warrant put out for her arrest for failure to appear. By June 1991, a large portion of her task force resigned, and she was told by numerous of her undercover informants that there was a $50,000 bounty on her head. With this, she was forced to take off, but being the smart woman she was, she took all of her files with her when she left. Yeah. Two years later, there would be a break in the case. There were new witnesses... One witness, Tommy Niehaus, contacted Linda Ives, which was Kevin's mother, and told her everything he knew and then immediately went into the witness protection program. The next witness was Charlene Wilson, former girlfriend of Dan Harmon, the police officer. Right. Well, yeah. Um, She would share her story and it would align with Tommy Niehaus's story and provide an accurate account of what had happened that night. Charlene would tell numerous stories of Don Harmon and his drug trafficking, as well as cocaine-filled parties with Bill Clinton in the governor's mansion. In 1994, the FBI is now involved and cleared Jean Duffy of all the false claims against her made by Harmon. From there, Linda Ives and Jean Duffy would band together and begin working and making huge leaps in the case. Things were once again going smoothly, and the ball was rolling in the right direction. But as with the rest of the the case so Mm -hmm. far the ball stopped the fbi found no no shortage of corruption in the state or county level quite the opposite actually they found that chuck banks should have been indicted for obstruction however the more they dug in the closer they would get to the dea governor clinton and the things happening at the mina airport the more attention it got from the washington bureau In 1995, the case was shut down by Special Agent Ivan Smith. In 1996, Jean Duffy and Linda Ives released a documentary called Obstruction of Justice, The Mina Connection. In it, they would name Kirk Lane and Jay Campbell as the probable killers. Both of those guys were sued for defamation and thankfully lost. It was decided by the jury that they had gathered enough evidence and that any rational person would come 
to the conclusion of guilt on their own. In 2007, Jay Campbell was convicted of 23 counts of various felonies, including drug and sex trafficking. He would face more than 300 years in prison. Judge John Cole would actually come out of retirement to be the one to cover the case. And he reduced the sentence from 300 years plus to just 40 years. Even though the case would eventually be reversed, thankfully his conviction came in 2010 and he would be sentenced to an extra 15 years in prison. Dr. Femi Malik. This fucker got off pretty scot-free. Of course. Because the dumbest ones, you know, like, be kind to dumb animals. And it's basically a fucking hit. I'm guessing it's about to fucking happen. Governor Bill Bill Clinton would pay two out-of-state... Clinton would have been still just as fitting, but anyway. Yeah. (laughs) Governor Bill Clinton would pay two out-of-state medical examiners from his discretionary fund. The two were hired, and they praised Malik's work and called him outstanding. But it's funny how that would change. shit. Yeah. That's funny how that would change when Bill Clinton would run for president. Clinton had a moment of clarity for himself only and realized that Malik was a huge liability, so he asked him to resign. Malik was then given a job with the local health department and was stuck consulting venereal diseases from that point on. My next thing was, or was he asked to be, quote-unquote, resigned? <laughs> yeah. Well, resigned I mean, permanently from life. That's, that's, <laughs> that's when Clinton was going to run for president, so he's like, yeah, I that's fucked what, up, we're just going to get rid of this guy. Like, What's going to happen with all these people when he comes, you know, goes for the presidency? Yeah. Answered that question. Yeah. Uh, In 2017, a a former professional wrestler, Billy Jack Haynes. Have you ever heard of him? No. Me neither. Um, He could have been like a minor league, not like WWE. Or just, you know, a backyard wrestler. Anyways, uh, Billy Jack Haynes would come forward and confess on video that he helped move the boys and place them on the railroad tracks. He said that the track was being used as a drop-off area for drug smugglers and then said that the two boys showed up while the drop was happening. He said while he did move the bodies, others were responsible for killing them. He claims that the murders of Kevin and Don were just one of several that happened due to drug trafficking. However, that remains unproven. Mm-hmm. Doesn't mean it didn't happen, though. Sadly, Kevin's mother, Linda Ives, passed away on June 3rd, 2021, at the age of 71. She had spent her life dedicated to her son and finding his and his best friend, Don's, killer. Mm -hmm. She fought tooth and nail and did everything she could think of to bring some sort of justice for both families. Kevin's father, Larry, and his sister, Alicia, are still alive as far as I know. I couldn't find much of anything about Don's family after the fact okay. so that's that so that's that fucking twisty like uh, it's just the the government cover-up shit is just insane yeah it is people if you suddenly see our names in an obituary section all of a sudden <laughs> just remember we did not kill ourselves <laughs> right or we didn't and if it comes out to be murder suicide we didn't shoot each other because we you know we're not that fucking psycho no, no. or whatever but yeah, whatever our obituary comes out after the Clintons come after us, don't fucking believe it. You know it's bullshit. Word. <laughs> what did you think of that? That, that was quite case. interesting, though, because it's like, 
the tarp was like the biggest thing. Is like, yeah, does this tarp exist or not? No, it doesn't. Yes, it does. Yes, no, it, it doesn't. Yes, yes it, it did does. exist, but they, right? the you know, officials, did everything they could to try and cover that shit right. up. Like them using this as a drop-off point in full flying planes, it must have been a pretty wide area. Yeah, it I had mean, to be. Well, I mean, look at the ones near our house. Mm-hmm. The three tra- wide tracks. If you have a good enough pilot. They can probably make it in there minus the singling bridges. I believe this was a single no, track. It, right away, it's still clear pretty well, but mm-hmm. it was probably a single prop plane that it flew in with, would be my guess, and dropped probably. it at a low altitude because it's like the song from Reverend Horton Heat comes to mind called uh, <laughs> Bales of Cocaine. Oh. Because the, the main chorus is Bales of Cocaine dropped from low flying planes. It's on one of the newer albums I actually bought, if I remember correctly. Huh. Yeah, that was quite interesting. Yeah. So now we've kind of dipped into a conspiracy theory, I guess you could say, even though it was actually proven what was actually going on. Yeah. But yeah, I never really knew about that, you know, about our former president, you know, having cocaine-filled parties at the governor's mansion. But, you know, 70s and yeah. 80s, I'm sure everybody was fucking doing that shit. Or, or that his mom was a nurse and right. fucking killed somebody on the table and got away with it scot-free well, yeah. by letting a black woman take the fall for her. Did so what are you going to talk about? I'm going to talk about train crashes for entertainment and one in particular that had some injuries and two fatalities. Oh. And it also caused a very temporary town to be the second largest city in Texas for its time period. What? It was a temporary town. Oh. It lasted one day, and it was the second largest populated city in the state of Texas for a day. Today, to seek a thrill, all we have to do is hop in our cars, drive to maybe an amusement park, and hop on a roller coaster, or a night of destruction at your local speedway if you're lucky to have one near where you live. Night of destruction being like your demolition derbies, your figure eight suicide yeah. races, stuff like that. But 85 years before monster trucks and 51 years before NASCAR was officially founded, thrill-seeking tourists and townsfolk would have to travel to festivals and fairs to witness intentional train wrecks. But in 1896, one of these first train crashes would be stitched into American history known as the Crash at Crush. Crash at Crush? Yep. Okay. This form of entertainment started a year before in Ohio by a name by name a al streeter didn't say what his initials were for streeter came up with this idea so people could see what train wrecks look like safely as part of the opening entertainment for buckeye pleasure park which we know today as theme parks that's so expensive though well and at this time they didn't really think think about it twice i guess uh his formula for this event is what most of these Train crashes followed after this very first one that he did for this grand opening for this park. Streeter would line up 1,800 feet of track or up to a mile, where at each end would be a locomotive facing towards each other and the head end would be facing towards each other. The engineers would wait for a signal to proceed forward and jump from the locomotives before they would crash into each other. There would be six crashes before the crush in 1896. <clears throat> intentional crashes intentional railroad crashes so okay. uh, anytime that i mention crashes it's intentional train crashes for okay. this uh following the panic of 1893 which was like a more mild great depression for this time mm-hmm. 
the Missouri Kansas Texas Railroad, or as it's known to its rail fans, is the Katy. And since Missouri Kansas Texas Railroad is kind of a mouthful, I'm going to refer to it as its rail fan name through this. It, the Katy Railroad was was struggling after this depression, basically, for freight and passenger revenue. Okay. A passenger agent by the name of William George Crush, who worked for the Katy Railroad, was given a task to find a way to attract new passengers to the rail line. George Crush had heard of these train crashes that were staged in Ohio before, and he wanted to do the same thing for the Katy Railroad. He proposed that seeing the train the train crash be free, but the only way to get there was to purchase a round-trip ticket to Crush, Texas, which is the temporary town, for $2, and, you know, once again... Inflation calculator! Yep. <laughs> which would equal out to $66.22 today That's from still... anywhere in the state of Texas. That's very cheap. At the time, it was still probably quite a bit of money. Yeah, but in today's money, that's right. That's and in the cheap. state of Texas, for going anywhere from the state of Texas for $66? You can't even fill your gas tank for $66. I think it probably costs about that for us to go to Chicago by South Shore these days. I don't know oh what the goodness. going rates are for it now. Before putting this event together, William Crush would ask an unknown amount of Katie engineers about crashing the two locomotives for this event, and all but one said it was safe. The one engineer that said it was dangerous would tell Crush that the locomotives would explode at impact. Crush dis dismissed his warning and carried on since he was the only one that was against it. This warning would be one of the first mistakes William Crush would make. Huh. I feel like there's a lot more coming. <laughs> no, there's like, there is, kind of. Mm -hmm. But before I continue on, I want to kind of go over a little bit how steam engines at the time worked for those that aren't familiar with them as much as I am, so we can understand how dangerous these really are. Um, because you see the trains go up and down the tracks all the time, diesels, you know, there's mm -hmm. still a lot of moving parts, but steam engines, it was simple but yet very complex on how they worked. Uh, steam engines, they are powered by the heating of water in a boiler to create steam that would be converted into engine energy after it's forced into a piston the piston is where all the forward momentum comes from the for of it being forced in and pushing the head of the plunger back basically like your cylinder okay. for your car their speed is controlled by opening a valve to either inject more steam by creating the pressure higher to make the piston push about faster with these pistons being pushed out this would create the energy that makes the moves makes the wheels move by a rod connected to the end of the piston the speed of the engine is also controlled by opening and closing a valve to either let in more or reduce the amount of steam injected into the piston. Uh, the class of locomotives that, that were used for this are known as the American class. Think of the steam trains from old-timey westerns. Okay. Or <clears throat> like Just kind of rinky-dink little... Yeah, very small. Okay. Um, when we started watching Hell on Wheels, those were a very, very, very crude model of an American engine. Um, Golden Spike Ceremony at Promontory Point. The two engines face to face each other. Those are American class. Okay. The, the American class would have a boiler pressure of 90 PSI, and later on near the end of the steam era, boiler pressures would get up to 200 PSI. So, like the big boy that the big boy, the world's largest operating steam locomotive now, has a boiler pressure of up to 200 pounds per square inch. And they need a lot because that's a big. I mm -hmm. mean, that's a big boy. Mm -hmm. Oh yeah. <laughs> These are basically. 
moving bombs for the most part okay with that much pressure even at 90 pounds that's still a lot of pressure yeah william crush would acquire two 30-ton locomotives of the american class that i just mentioned it would be number 999 and number 1001 that were being replaced by newer 60-ton locomotives william crush would have number 999 painted green with red trim whereas number 1001 was painted in the opposite colors so it was painted green with the red no don't be painted red with the green trim right i'm setting up for this event the temporary town of crush texas would be built just outside of waco texas which is now more famous for something more infamous these days um Katie would construct the four-mile section of track that was separated from the rest of the railroad and to keep the trains from possibly reaching the main line where all the spectators were coming in for the event. This four-mile track section was set up to start on top of two hills, and the trains would meet in a valley where all the spectators had gathered to witness this crash. How, uh, you may get to this at a, a certain point, but like, how many people came to watch that? Oh, I'm going to get to that. Okay. I'm just deciding giving you this idea of okay. how he had this all set up. Okay. At first, I thought this is what they would initially call what was a flag stop, which is basically if there's not somebody there with a flag out on a post, uh-huh. they're not going to stop. No, they literally built a freaking functional depot for the, all of this. And this included telegraph services for the press and, and other amenities available as well for in Crush, Texas. Huh. Uh, William Crush was actually good friends with one of the Ringling brothers, and he borrowed a circus tent from them to set up a restaurant. Um, he would also have for pre he would also have pre show entertainment as well. Um, carnival rides and games were also on the site with cigar vendors, medicine shows, which snake oil salesmen. Oh, okay, basically is yeah. what that is. Which my after reading this little article, I figure out what a medicine show was. I might do an episode on that this year. And sideshow acts, and they had even constructed jail and manned the grounds with 200 constables. Police officers is what they, the constables was the term for this. So this area had to be pretty big if there yeah. were 200 officers. Yeah. Well, they probably weren't exactly sure how much people were coming, so they probably got as yeah. many people as you can because my time at the fire service, when talking about doing scene size ups, there was this term we would use called go ugly early. Which okay. basically means call everybody out now and then reel them, reel them back in as you don't really need them. Right. And there was also a grandstand was constructed for the honored guests along with a bandstand and a platform for the press at Crush Texas for all this. Even though this event would end up somewhat of a disaster, they did take some safety precautions. But like I said, it probably wasn't really enough for because they didn't know what was going to happen. Mm-hmm. In the weeks leading up to this, they would perform speed tests to calculate how fast each train had to be going to meet at the same exact time for people to see this, where the crowd has gathered at. Okay. Some of the other safety precautions that were taken, uh, the rail cars were chained together. Since the more modern knuckle coupler that the trains use now has not been invented at this time, they used what was called a pin and rack system. No, loop and pin, basically. Right. That's it. You guys couldn't see him, but he made the motion of a dick in a, in a vagina. Oh, I wouldn't go with that. I just made a circle with my hand and stuck my finger through it. That's just exactly what you do. <laughs> Boop. See? So, yeah. That episode's a little bit dirty behind the... <laughs> um, behind, behind the microphone. Behind the microphone, yeah. Behind the shop counter. That's what it is. <laughs> yeah. Each, each of these trains consist, or the number of cars total, 
uh, would be six boxcars loaded with railroad tires. I'm going to make the assumption that they loaded these cars down with these railroad ties for some weight so the cars wouldn't get airborne from once the collision happens. Oh, yeah. Um, because at this time, steel box cars weren't a thing yet. They were all wood. I mean, you probably had your iron frames for flooring and yeah. framework, and that was about it. But everything else is wood because Henry Ford being one of our favorite places, they had rail cars yeah. on display there, and you saw how small they are and mm-hmm. how much they are of wood. Um, this is also probably the other mistake that I don't think it, because they that they did that they, because they didn't expect this explosion to happen. Uh-huh. Uh, they would establish a safety perimeter of 200 yards for the public. Honestly, should have probably been much farther back, which probably changed oh. after this happened. And uh, the press was able to be at least 100 yards away from it because you didn't have zoom lenses like we do now. So if 200 yards was way too close. <laughs> A hundred yards, like, turned into barbecue, I'm assuming. Yeah, me, not exactly. No? Um, the weeks leading up to the crash, this that was the, the crash that was dubbed the Duel of the Iron Monsters, we advertised across North Texas by rail and in newspaper ads and flyers across the state of Texas as well. Uh, the Katie expected anywhere between twenty and 25,000 people to attend, but at the day of the crash, by 10 a.m., 10,000 people have already showed up. Damn, that's a lot. And this is supposed to start at 4 <clears> o'clock <throat> in the afternoon. In the heat, heat of the day. Mm-hmm. If I remember, I forgot to put the date in there. I think the date was September 15th. So, oh, so it was really hot. Yeah. Plus being in Texas. Mm-hmm. And in old-time Victorian suits and dresses. Yeah, oh, God, yeah. <laughs> uh, there's already 10,000 people there by 10 a.m., and they're still coming in by the freaking train load. And by 4 p.m., how many people do you think actually showed up? 25,000. Higher than that. 50,000. Less than that. 37,000. You're almost there. 38. 40,000 people showed up. Wow. That's a lot. Yeah. Damn. So, yeah, these 40,000 people that showed up to crush Texas would make it the second largest city in Texas for the day. And it wasn't even a real city. It wasn't even a real city. It was a temporary <laughs> town made for God. this spectacle. That's crazy. For the Katy Railroad. The crash was actually scheduled to take place at 4 p.m., but even Karens existed in the time and ignoring the safety barriers place for their own safety. They didn't think it, you know, they had to apply the rules. Of course. Fucking Karens. So it took them over an hour to establish, to push the crowd back behind the 200-yard barrier. At 5 p.m., the crowds would finally be under control and pushed back to a safe distance. The two trains would touch cow catchers. Cow catchers? The big pointy thing in the front was always known as a cow catcher on these older steam engines. Okay. They weren't really meant to catch cows. They were more the the fling cows. You're talking about like the point in the front, like on the Polar Express? Yes. Okay. Okay. The, on the American class, it was more prominent. I'm obviously going to show pictures. Right. For when you send you pictures for when you do the YouTube part of this, correct? But uh, yeah, they didn't really catch cows like I always thought as a kid. Where like for some reason as a kid, I thought it like when a cow hit it, it would fold <laughs> up and hold carry a cow. <laughs> well, my name. I mean, that's nicer than the alternative, I guess. I mean, yeah, it's nicer than reality when it's just gonna splatter a cow or split it in half or deflect it to a point or it snaps its neck when it hits the ground. If that, yeah, I can only imagine what happened to the engine if a fucking moose hit it. Oh, God. 
Like that video that's been going around lately of the cap car that fucking hits a moose yeah. broadside and a mouse moose just gets up like nothing fucking happened. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, we're getting off track here. Hey! <laughs> um, the cow, the two engines would touch cow catchers and then they would push themselves back. They would reverse these engines and go put to go to their starting points. William Crush would ride in on a white charger. And he would raise his hat and send the signal to both of the locomotives that come to initiate the crash across. Uh, the train crews would tie off the whistles and only ride these two doomed engines for about four cycles of the main drive wheels before they would jump off. They believed that these trains met somewhere between 45 miles per hour and 90 miles per hour. It's That's the, a big difference. It's the two numbers that came up. With all the resources. But either way, you've got two things that heavy going. Right. That even 45 miles an hour, like that's going to do some damage. Right. And I'm going to say it was probably closer to 45 just because of the age of the engines. I do have a couple quotes here to give you an idea of what it was like witnessing the crash. And then I have another one that comes up about what it was like when it exploded. Okay. And so this first one is there's no names or anything. The article that they came from, not even available online anymore. Oh, wow. The rumble of the two trains faint and far off at first, but growing nearer and more distinct with each fleeting second was like the gathering force of a cyclone. Nearer and nearer they came, the whistles of each blowing repeatedly and the torpedoes which had been placed on the tracks exploding in almost continuous round-like rattle of musketry. They rolled down at a frightful rate of speed within a quarter of a mile of each other, nearer and nearer as they approached the fatal meeting place. The rumbling increased, the roaring grew louder. Wow. I can only imagine. And a torpedo is basically like a small section of explosive that they would use attached to the railhead so it wouldn't roll over. Think of it as a little snap popper thing Uh on freaking steroids, basically. Oh, okay. And enough explosive force for them to feel and hear it inside of one of these extremely loud operating engines. It was used as an early warning device. They still use them in some areas today. Shortly after the crash, there was a large explosion from the boilers of both engines sending wood and metal flying through the air, killing two and injuring six other people. One of these inju- injuries that actually I could find information on was photographer for the event Jarvis Dean and would still have his team take photos while he dealt with an iron bolt now lodged into his eye. Uh, (laughs) Jeez, that's dedication. A Civil War veteran even described the explosion and aftermath more terrifying than the Battle of Gettysburg. I'm not sure if this next quote is from the said veteran, but it did keep coming up with all the other places that I did read. The information on this. There was a swift instance of silence, and then, as if controlled by a single impulse, both boilers exploded simultaneously, and the air was filled with flying missiles of iron and steel, varying in sizes from the postage stamp to half of a driving wheel. Wow. I'm sure the wood splintered from the boxcars, the ties. I don't know if these were coal burning or wood burning. I'm pretty sure all Americans were water burning, so now all the wood in the tenders just being flung everywhere and William Crush would actually be fired immediately on the spot because of this explosion and of what happened who who fired him 
if this was like his thing. Higher ups at Katie, Katie executives. Oh, okay, the real, okay. Gotcha. People above him. But after these higher ups heard how the people in attendance had such a great time during this crash, he was actually hired the next day. Rehired the next day. Well, that's fucking lucky, I guess. Even though the crash at Crush was a one-time event for the Katy Railroad, but a man by the name of Joe Conley would actually go on to stage 70 more train wrecks between 1896 and 1932 and would earn the nickname of Head on Joe. Of course he would. <laughs> of, cor- of course he would. I mean, what else would you call The him? funny thing is, when I was writing my script for this, I knew as soon as you hear that, it's like, of course he would. <laughs> Did you really? Yes, I it's did. like you know me or something. I knew exactly as soon as you heard me read that, you were going to be like, of course he would. Yeah. Joe Conley would get a start with being a professional train crasher at the Iowa State Fair. And from here, he would crisscross the country from L.A. to Boston staging train wrecks. In his travels, he would spice things up with strapping dynamite to the front of these trains and also filling them with hot coals and gasoline so they would explode into a giant fireball when they would actually crash. I mean, you give you give a boy a toy, right? Right. You know they're going to be destructive. And one, <laughs> right. One, like, it's, come on. Right. You, it's, yep. Right. And he would also paint different political candidates for spectators to root for the, uh, to root for the locomotives during this crash. So, yeah, political bullshit like it is now, Jeez. it's been around forever for the, for the most part. Um, for example, one of these political ones, he would stage a Hoover versus Roosevelt in 1932. In the height of the Great Depression, the train wrecks for entertainment it starts to quickly lose popularity as it was deemed extremely wasteful of resources during the Depression. And kindly would stage his last wreck, fittingly at the Iowa, St- Iowa State Fair again. And his final words that was been reported that he said as he walked away was, well, that's that. Wow. Um, that was very anticlimactic. <laughs> I was hoping it was something fucking like, well, fuck you too, then. <laughs> no. Um, the last known train wreck of this type would actually be held in 1935, but I couldn't find any details where where Aww. it was or what happened there exactly. The clip you didn't see me watching the other day yeah. was actually from the 1950s from the Durango Silverton Railroad. When they crashed two engines for a film, which I do not remember the name of, and I should have put it and in And that here. was the film part that you were watching. Yeah. Okay. Sorry if you guys just heard yeah. that. I was trying to get my glasses yeah. back on my And face. I'm sure being the Durango and Silverton, a bunch of fucking foamers lost their shit when they saw that video. Foamers. Um, because some of the groups I'm in now, apparently one or two of those m- engines, they point- painted the boilers green, and holy shit, the boomer foamers have lost their fucking mind You over should it. probably explain what a foamer is okay. to those that don't so, know. You have, like, I'll use sports as an example to be more common. So you have your fan. So we'll say, okay, we'll use one that's close to us. We'll use fucking Notre Dame. Okay. So you have your fans of Notre Dame. You know, they watch a game. You know, they have a shirt or Mm -hmm. two or whatever. They wear, you know, their lucky hat on game day or whatever. And then you have the fanatics that can ramble off the sports, sports statistics for the Notre Dame fighting irish of 1987 you know football team to in a degree owns everything notre dame related bath mats toilet paper god knows if it's got the fucking irish leprechaun on it they fucking own it and so basically what a foamer is 
think of it as a Notre Dame fanatic. They can num- rattle off all the information on any given locomotive you give them or railroad, like to the point that no, you, you don't really fucking care. <laughs> See, I was like, I knew what the foamer was because you've explained it to right. me before, but in my head, like the way I see it is like they're so enthralled and like consumed by the shit that they like mm-hmm. foam at the mouth. It's basically how it started. What I understand from like railroaders were saying, God damn, they foam at the mouth basically. Okay, then stuff. yeah, I wasn't far off. Um, so like I'm probably gonna catch some flack from this. Like I used a Union Pacific yeah. big boy earlier. Yeah. I can give two shits less of that about that engine as a fucking rail fan. Yes. <gasps> David yeah you're going to disappoint your daddy no <laughs> you probably know which one i probably lose my shit over if it ever fucking ran again which we both know is never gonna happen oh which one would that be something i should know yeah yep is it the one at the henry ford Mm-hmm. oh okay there's only two of those left in existence and neither one of them are in operating no one of them is in operating condition and it's never gonna leave that building mm because one of the groups I'm in, he's actually a employee of the Greenfield and it's been brought up is and asked in there before and he says, Yeah, it says it is an operation operating condition still, but it's never gonna leave that building. Probably not, yeah. And not only <clears throat> that, the weight of that thing there's it's huge. Yeah. It's actually larger than the big boy that I had mentioned. Huge. even though the Union Pacific Big Boy is the largest Chesapeake and Ohio Alleghenies are the more powerful engines. Okay, to give you just an example of how massive this train is that he's talking about that's at the Henry Ford in Dearborn, Michigan, I stood next to the wheel. Mm-hmm. Fucking iron-ass wheel. Right. <laughs> I'm 5'3". That thing was taller than me. Yeah. Just one wheel. Yeah. Yeah. It's insane. Insane. Yeah. So that's it about train crashes and whatnot. And I'm probably going to have a couple more train episodes on my list. I'm probably going to throw in at some point this year. Maybe not. We'll see. To be determined. <clears throat> to be determined with our scheduling. We already have listed out for almost into what, April? Uh, Yeah, the last one we have oh. written for is April. And then one in May for a yep. very specific reason. Yep. And then there's some gaps in between. But we're mostly... I think we're good to go for a while. So instead of doing our regular intro, excuse me, outro of our music and our social media bit, um, we did have planned for the end of our New Year's Eve episode is a clip that I stitched of some behind the scene bloopers of us just being stupid, mispronunciations and stuff like that. Yeah, I mean... Because there's a lot that they cut out. Like, since our most of our episodes are an hour long, yeah. I generally cut out about a half an hour yep. worth of material because it's mispronunciations. It's gaps because we apparently we forgot something in our script. So other than that, I think it might be time we close up the Emporium for the day, Sarah. What do you think? I agree. So until next time. Remember to creep it real. Oh, yeah. Also, Happy New Year. All that fun shit. Thanks for listening. We hope you continue to listen for the next coming year. Okay, bye. Bye. We have been together. (laughs) Did you fucking throw in the Doobie Brothers? No. Wasn't it Steely Dan? (laughs) (laughs) You did. God damn it. (laughs) Oh, see, the thing with that is. (laughs) 
When I actually looked up the billboard one hits for 1973, they had like China Grove and a couple long a long train running on there. And my thought was, no, I'm not gonna put that in there. And I just literally read Steely Dan and just fucking the Doobie Brothers fucking shot out of my goddamn mouth. I was like, I'm pretty sure I saw that the other day, or you know. 25 minutes ago and it said steely dan and then i saw your face and it all made sense like you did that shit on purpose okay i'll start back <laughs> okay do you need more cloud rips before we do episode two i'm not but yeah. that, 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 nah, i'm not loving it <laughs> the fuck oh too bad it wasn't burger king because that one was a whopper oh look at you coming in and being punny about it now Okay. Let me get my emotional support cat. Okay. <laughs> a queer little boy who is constantly shooting his pistol. Hopefully they're meaning it has actual firearm and not something else. Cutting that out because I had to get that shit out because I know what's coming. Because <laughs> I know how bad this is. You don't. So I had to get that shit out. <sighs> okay. At 5.05 p.m. officers are given the authorization. <laughs> Fuck you, spit. Uh, right. Have weird moans and howls coming from dark corners. Wonder where the weird moans came from. <laughs> I'm sure it's not anything like a oh yeah. Oh fuck no. No, that's a whole other haunted house, and you gotta be a certain age <laughs> under that one. <laughs> Would you hurry up? Now I gotta read the whole fucking part over again because someone just had to throw up. Finally, thank you. And we are recording. Yay! Welcome back to Macabre Emporium. We are one now, episode three. Yes, this is episode three. Yeah, technically four. I'm sure you guys by now have heard the Halloween bonus episode that we did. Sorry, my <laughs> blank <laughs> Do you want to start the whole thing over? Yep. <laughs> okay. You want to get rid of that so it's not shit you got to cut out? Did you boop her nose? No. I do this. Don't boop her nose because she just booped his butthole, so. <laughs> <laughs> no, I do this and she usually runs her head on, under my finger like this. Sexual immor- immortality. Fucking idiot. <laughs> Gertrude. Is he done? You want to go take a shit next? Maybe puke in, puke in the kitchen? <laughs> no, Salem's the puker for audio. He's, he's clawing in sticky beans. Yes. Okay, I'm going to start that over. Okay. Her luck seemingly changed when Lester Likens gave her the opportunity to board the dirty. Sex and snap sex. Maybe I should just say sex ten and be done with it. <laughs> fuck. Still on my line of <coughs> I know your face was like, like, what the fuck do I do? <laughs> right. Well, you're going to name it Halloween episode anyway, yeah. so. And then Whatever. since somebody wants to be fucking <clears throat> healthy right now. It's our ginger bitch. Mm-hmm. <laughs> There's another clip. Although, darlings do. F- uh, nope, you didn't hear that. <laughs> What? Yeah, exactly. You didn't hear that. 
we go again. Take 73. That's going to be a clip now. Could have been a much shorter walk if Tony had remembered where he parked his, poked his car. <laughs> I mean, you don't know. He could be into some geeky shit like that. Yeah, then Brian's been all less and else get the head like a fake pussy in the back of it. <laughs> Anyhow, <laughs> that's getting cut. <laughs> So, with that said, and fucking sirens because it's fucking daytime. Ooh, and we're in the hood. Not really. Now, one part that they kind of embellished at the end of it was a goddamn train running through Tony's fucking apartment. <laughs> oh, if only that was true. You might as well pause it. Fucking National Guard was going to run a train through Tony's fucking bedroom wall. And then the football team was just going to run a train. I mean, so most people are like, oh, my God, death, ew, blah, blah, blah. Okay, so you know what? Get over it. It's part of life. You know, what the fuck is that noise? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> what is it? I don't know. It's the fucking fridge. Is it really? Yes, it is. God damn it.